everyone's got an obsessed in their lives. My first was Harry Potter. The wizarding world charmed me from the first book, and when the story came to life on screen, I fell further in love. I rewatched that first movie so much, I can recite it with a British accent. I wasn't content with just absorbing the magic, I wanted to live it, so I delved in headfirst in the Potter fandom, joined online forums with fellow Potterheads to play out my life at Hogwarts. The train did not stop there. I taught myself Photoshop and HTML code to craft background templates that captured the essence of the wizarding world to contribute to my community. And then came the fan fiction. I penned stories that wove myself into JK Rowling's universe. Characters I'd grown to love, magic I wished to master, all came alive under my fingertips. It was safe to say that I was obsessed, and the more time I spent, the more I loved it. Science backs it up. Welcome to Self-Help Junkie, the podcast where we explore the world of personal development through the eyes of book enthusiasts. I'm your host, Erica Ng, a communication coach and your resident bookworm. This season, we'll be focused on developing our romantic skills, but before we dive into the conversation with our guests, let's get a one-minute summary of what is love. Love, an enchanting and complex emotion that has fascinated humanity for ages, it eludes easy scientific explanation. What we do know is that the brain takes center stage and the processes affect us physiologically and psychologically. Imagine neurotransmitters and hormones as emails zipping through the brain and body, delivering important messages. These chemicals orchestrate various stages of love, shaping the highs and lows of emotions that we experience. Early in romantic love, dopamine, the feel-good neurotransmitter, takes the spotlight, flooding our minds with pleasure, reward, and motivation. As relationships progress, we enter the bonding phase. Oxytocin strengthens emotional bonds and sows the seeds of trust and intimacy between partners. Romantic love sets the brain's reward system ablaze. When we're in love, our brains release more dopamine in response to the positive experience and thoughts of our beloved, and it just creates this delightful feedback loop. It's an addictive cycle, but as with any love story, heartbreak is an unwelcomed guest. Breakup triggers intense emotional distress, and in neurological terms, our brains yearn for another hit of those love chemicals. And with that, let's dive in. So today we have on Sandra, and she's going to be taking us through some of her research. Now, before we jump into the published works that you have, I have a question for you. So have you had any hypotheses that you were really excited about that ended up being inconclusive or the opposite of what you expected? Yeah, for sure. That often happens. (laughs) So one time I was having a conversation with a journalist and the journalist asked me, so what are butterflies in the stomach? And I was like, well, that's a really good and very interesting question. And I don't know. Um, And so after I was done talking with her, I I started doing some research, some literature research to see if that had been studied. And I couldn't find any studies, but I did find two studies that looked at how strong the intestines contract when Mm. you become emotionally aroused. So just very emotional, very angry or very happy or very scared. Um, And those studies show that the intestines contract more strongly the more emotionally intense a feeling is. And, you know, that makes sense because we say, you know, I have knots in my stomach when you're scared or... And so I was thinking that I that made sense to me that the same would happen with butterflies in the stomach, but then we just call it butterflies instead of knots, right? Right. It sounds nicer. (laughs) We're attributing it to love and not I'm I'm anxious about something. So I tried to... (laughs) tried to study that. I put Mm. electrodes on people's stomach, just like the other study had done. And I showed them pictures of their beloved and also very emotionally intense pictures that have nothing to do with the beloved. And then I I just found nothing. Right. (laughs) And and I tried it twice. 
And uh, I don't know if I was doing it wrong because normally I use those same electrodes to measure brain waves. And so right. I know how to, I just never had used them to study stomach waves, even though right. they're <laughs> so maybe I did it wrong, or maybe it's really not that that's not what butterflies in the stomach are. I, I don't know, but I'm I'm still very intrigued. I think it's a great question, and I think we right. need a scientific answer. I mean, I think that's really difficult. I've read some other places where you were talking about the definition of love and how we use it as an all-encompassing term. And I'm imagining like when I first started dating my boyfriend, yeah, I got butterflies in the stomach because I was kind of nervous. But now I look at him, I don't have that same type of feeling, even though the love is, I would hope, much deeper than when we initially met, right? Right. Yeah. So so scientists do not agree on a definition of love. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we do agree on that there are different types of love, but Mm -hmm. we don't agree on which types or even how many types. Right. (laughs) But I think what you are describing is a very common uh, experience. And and so there are two types of love that can explain your experience. So um, the early stages, very intense feelings of love that are accompanied by butterflies in the stomach and euphoria, but also a lot of uh, like uh, anxiety Mm -hmm. uh, and nervousness that has been called passionate love or infatuation Mm -hmm. or attraction. And that's sort of an early something that's very intense early on and that decreases rather quickly over time, which is probably good because it's so intense and <laughs> yeah, stressful <laughs> consuming, <laughs> that it's good that you don't have that for the rest of your life. And then the other form of love that you're, that you're describing, which is much calmer feeling of bonding mm-hmm. um, has been called attachment or companionate love. Mm-hmm. And that takes a little time to develop. So usually when people get into a relationship, then over a few months, do a couple of years that that really increases as the infatuation decreases. Mm-hmm. Makes yeah. sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So I hear you're already describing two different types of love for your own research. It sounds like in the field, there's a lot of different opinions uh, on like the number of types of love and like how to categorize them. How do you do it in your day to day? So, so I use those two types, infatuation and attachment or passionate love and companionate love. Um, and then I also have looked at sexual desire or, mm. or lust, which I think is also a form of love. Not everyone sees it as a form of love. Um, so I use those three types of mm-hmm. love that's based on a model by Helen Fisher. So I didn't make that up by myself, <laughs> uh, but I, I read her model and, and that sort of was very appealing to me. But yeah, other researchers have studied other types of love too. Yeah. And sometimes people use the same term for a different type of love. So it's it's all very messy. Right. And you've been in the field for a while now, uh, studying uh, neuroscience, love behaviors. How has the field changed in the time that you've been in it? How has studying love changed? So I think the field is currently rapidly changing, which is is very exciting. I feel like when the reason I basically got into this field, because I, I was very interested in the neurobiology of romantic love. And then I was trying to find scientific articles and there weren't that many. Mm. And so that's when, why I was like, well, then I'm going to do the work. And so luckily that all worked out. And so now I'm studying uh, the neurocognition of romantic love. And so I'm very excited to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, there just aren't or weren't a lot of researchers working on that. There were a lot of researchers studying um, the sort of the social psychology of love. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you think about how people interact and how two people together form a bond and right. relationships. And that's all very important. Um, but what I study is the feeling of love. Mm-hmm. And so I often just put into the lab, just people who are in love and you get them by themselves without their partner. Right. Um, 
and they may not even have they may not even be in a relationship with the person they are in love with because that's oh, interesting um and so i feel like there's more and more people starting to study love uh the feeling or the neurobiology of love um and and i'm very happy about that so last year i went to the first conference about love i just saw wow. another conference being organized about love and that years ago did not happen so i'm very right. excited Right. So that's really interesting. So when it comes to getting the participants, you're just asking for people who are self-reportedly saying that they're in love. It's not like you're measuring for a chemical or like activity in the brain somehow. Right. It varies a little bit between studies. Mm -hmm. um, but oftentimes I just recruit people who are in love with someone. Mm -hmm. And then there's no objective way to measure whether no. someone's in love. So I have developed a questionnaire a while ago that measures those two types of love, infatuation and attachment. Uh -huh. um, and so when they come into the lab, I have them complete the questionnaire, but that's not to diagnose them. It's not to say, you know, if you score higher than this number on this person, <laughs> you are in love because I don't think that's how it works. Um, it is more to say, you know, this participant scored higher on this questionnaire than the other participants. We know this participant is more in love than the other one, but the other one may still be in love. So it's more to compare between people uh, right. rather than to determine if someone is in love or not. Right. And that's interesting too, seeing if certain people might self-report as higher than someone else, even because I'm thinking with my group of friends, I have some friends who are like, I'm so in love with this person and they say it a lot. Whereas I'm kind of just, I don't need to say it to report right. it, um, right. but that's, yeah, very interesting. Let's dive into some of the studies that you've done. So the two most recent that I took a look at was looking at pictures of your partner to increase marital satisfaction. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that came to be? Yeah. Yeah. So I had done an issue, a previous study in which I had shown that if you think positively about your beloved, that increases your love feelings, um, which can be very helpful, right? For people. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering, um, is that just because people are now thinking positive things, mm. right? We're thinking nice things. So that makes you feel better. And does that make you feel more in love? Like what if everything in your life is going right? You know, your job is awesome. Right. You have a nice pet. Does that make you more in love with someone so is it doesn't have to do with thinking positively about the beloved specifically mm -hmm. or just positively about other things world, yeah so that's what i wanted to test uh, in that study so for this study i recruited people who were married um mm. so that's more objective than are you in love or not so they were married <laughs> but i got them by themselves so the spouse didn't have to participate in the study at all and i had them look at pictures of their spouse and then other pleasant pictures, uh, such as cute puppies, nice food, extreme sports, uh, you know, beautiful nature, things like that, mm -hmm. and neutral pictures. And then I found that when people at their uh, spouse, they are they report more infatuation, more attachment, and more marital satisfaction than when looking at the other two types of pictures: pleasant pictures, neutral pictures. So the pleasant pictures are very pleasant, mm -hmm. right? But they didn't increase infatuation, attachment, and marital satisfaction. So that proved that it's not just feeling more positive or pleasant in general that makes you, either that can increase love feelings and marital mm -hmm. satisfaction, uh, but it's really about the, the beloved, the spouse. Right. And that's yeah. really interesting that you'd both tested just thinking positively as well as visuals because um, the last two that you published were about the visuals, right? Like having um, a picture of your partner or the sexy pictures of your partner, which was also an interesting one. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I usually show a picture of the partner on the screen or, mm-hmm. or the beloved if they're not in a relationship um, and then see how the brain responds to that picture. And I either have them think nothing in particular right before the picture or I have them try to think positively about the uh, the, the, the person on the picture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or, uh, we also had them think even more positively about the pleasant pictures. Um, in that study that the thinking specific things didn't increase love feelings even more. So mm-hmm. it was just enough to just look at the spouse picture. Um, which, you know, that is a very simple love upregulation sure. strategy. Um, and in other studies, people have also, um, argued that this can also be helpful for, for long distance relationships. Right. If you're not able to interact a lot with your beloved, just looking at pictures of them um, increases your love feelings. Yeah, I guess that means if you were to give a practical tip from there, it's change your lock screen on your phone to a picture of them. Put it on your fridge. Right. Yeah. 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 And have you when you do these studies, are you immediately like, how can I integrate this into my own life? How can I make sure that I love my partner? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've been married for a while now uh, and I definitely try to use these strategies in my life too. I will say that my research is fundamental research or basic research, Mm -hmm. which means it is driven by curiosity. So I just want to understand how the world works and try to gain knowledge. And my, my research is not applied. So applied means Mm -hmm. you are now developing a new therapy or a new medicine or some new technology something and and so that's just not the kind of work that I do so I hope that there are some applied researchers that will use my fundamental findings to maybe develop a therapy or an app maybe to (laughs) to help people do these strategies for example right 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 I like the idea of just strategies that anyone can apply I don't think I need another app on my phone (laughs) to like look at a picture of my partner (laughs) you know the app could remind you to apply the strategies or something like Very that. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really cool that your research is based on your own curiosity when things come up. So you said previously that you had someone interview you and they asked you about the butterflies in the stomach and that brought you to something new. Where do you usually get your inspiration from? Is it from your your partner that's <laughs> that just inspires you to love them every day? Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Definitely personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um I can tell you the sort of the background of how I even got into this sure. research. So my high school boyfriend at the time broke up with me and I was devastated. Mm-hmm. And then uh, about half a year later, I fell in love with someone else and I was over the moon. And then a few weeks later, I started my undergrad studies in biological psychology. And so I knew I was interested in biological psychology, but then because I had those two very opposite experiences, so close to each other mm-hmm. and so close to starting my studies, Whenever I was reading anything about psychology and biological psychology, I was thinking like, uh, why was I so heartbroken? What was going on in my right. brain and body? And then now I'm so over the moon. So what's happening in my brain and my body? And then whenever I had to write a paper for a class, I was always trying to see if I could spin it to so that I could, you know, do the assignment, but it also be about <laughs> sort of the biology of romantic <laughs> love. Figuring it yourself that's how out. I realized, right. And that's how I realized there weren't a lot of scientific articles because if you mm. Google, you can find everything. But for those right. papers, I needed scientific articles, of course, and those I couldn't really find. And that's right. why I was like, like, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do the work. So yes, definitely personal experience. And then conversations like these with, mm-hmm. with people that are interested in my, in my work. And then also students, you know, I, I teach classes and students, I teach some of my classes are about my research and other classes are about more emotions in general or memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then students have great questions too, that I'm like, well, that's a great question. I don't know. 
let me go find out. Yeah. That sounds like the dream. That was one thing that drew me to the sciences when I was younger. Um, but chemistry, it's a lot of lab work and testing things. I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so it sounds like your philosophy on love is really based on neuroscience and what it does to the brain. Do you feel like studying romance has made romance less of a mystery and less romantic in general? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes and no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so some people are actually afraid that if you study romantic love, that it takes away the magic. Because mm. Some people have told me you should not study this because <laughs> that's going to take away the magic. Well, way into my research, I fell in love with someone else. And I can assure you that it did not take away the magic. <laughs> was my now husband. And so I was again, head over heels. And I was like, yep, this is what I've been writing about. And this is how right. I feel still very strong. Um, now if you, so another example I often use is, so we don't know a lot about the science of romantic love yet. Mm -hmm. Um, we do know a lot about memory, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we have a pretty good understanding of how memory works yet. We don't have perfect memory, right? Even mm -hmm. with all the knowledge we have, we can help it to improve our memory a little bit, but it doesn't, make us have perfect memory, even if we have an almost perfect understanding of how things work. Right. So even if we were to understand love perfectly, when yes. we're a long way from that, um, it will still feel that way. Although I will say that you can then also use the knowledge. So you can also um, say things like, <clears throat> I'm very in love with this person. Maybe it's someone you don't want to be in love with. Maybe it's an ex-partner or mm -hmm. you know a boss or a student or something like that. It's just neurotransmitters. It's just hormones. Right. So you could maybe use that to, to try and downplay the feeling a little bit. And that, that actually one of my studies, it didn't work. I, I tested that strategy. Really? We thought it would work. Um, it didn't, but I, I think in general, we know that you can downregulate emotions that way. I mean, I've experienced that personally. So the last breakup that I was in, I did a lot of research. I was like, how do I get over this? Like, I want to get over this as soon as possible. So um, I was looking up the different uh, chemicals that are released in the brain so that when I was longing for this person, wanting to get back together, it's like, no, it's just your brain wants that hit of dopamine and oxytocin, not because you necessarily actually want to be with this person. Like you broke up with them. Um, so yeah, I think that it worked for me. So maybe I need to be in your next study. <laughs> that ever happens. Um, but yeah. Okay. So we have the two studies on looking at the photos. Um, are there any other daily strategies that you have found in your studies that people could apply? Yeah. 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 So thinking positively about the beloved, you know, they're so smart, they're so handsome, they're mm -hmm. so funny, or thinking about uh, positive aspects of the relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we we are so compatible. We think the same about these things. We have the same values, we have the same hobbies, things like that. Um, or thinking positively about the future, like we'll get married and live happily ever after. Mm -hmm. um, those, those strategies increase um, love feelings for someone. The study that you referred to earlier about the sexual desire, mm -hmm. um, I have shown that because sexual desire uh, dec declines over time too, just like infatuation, and that mm -hmm. can be become a problem in relationships. Yeah. So we did a study to see could, if people could increase sexual desire for a long-term partner. Um, and it turned out that uh, sexual fantasies, so um, we had problems like think about something naughty your partner could say or do during sex or what type right. of furniture would you like to have sex on with your 
partner. Um, thinking about those types of things, uh, increased sexual desire for a long-term partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the study that we just talked about, just looking at pictures also increases love feelings and relationship satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, I think, the strategies that I found in my studies to increase love feelings. Right. And it sounds like a lot of these are, there's like one beloved and one person that's being focused on. I'd be interested to see how polyamory works because I've been talking to more and more people who say that it works for them. But to me, it's confusing. I'm like, wouldn't you, I don't know, like with romantic love, I found one person at a time, if not like, maybe you have crushes on two people, but there's definitely a front runner there. Yeah. 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 So I don't know much about the science of, of that. I've not done study uh, on that or I read any studies. Mm. Um, typically it's sort of, again, we're, we don't agree on how to define love, but typically we assume mm-hmm. that people experience infatuation only for one person at a time. Mm-hmm. So that passion, love, the early stage butterflies. Mm-hmm. Um, attachment, the more calmer form of bonding, we can actually experience for a lot of people at the same time. So it could be a rom- romantic partner, but we are typically also attached to parents, to children, right. to friends, even to pets. And so I'm not surprised if people would report attachment to multiple romantic partners. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't yeah wouldn't be that surprising to me i i I would be curious to see if they would also report infatuation for for two more people at the same time because that i would find surprising but if people report that then clearly it's possible right um yeah it's also interesting to note that infatuation is often accompanied by sexual desire Mm -hmm. but you can experience sexual desire for someone without being infatuated with someone or attached Mm -hmm. so those forms of love they can be separate, but they can also occur at the same time for the same person and definitely at the same time for different people. So you can feel sexual desire for one person, infatuation for another one, and attachment for yet another one. So right. that, is, that is also very well possible. Right. Yeah. Amazing the what the human brain can do and what it can accomplish. Um, so, yeah, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anywhere that if people were looking for your work, is there anywhere that you could point them towards? Yeah, so I have a lab website. Um, mm-hmm. So if you Google um, NEM Lab, so mm-hmm. N-E-M, Neurocognition of Emotion and Motivation Lab, mm-hmm. uh, you will find my website. Uh, I also have a lab Facebook page. So again, if you if you look at NEM Lab mm-hmm. at UMSL, uh, U-M-S-L on Facebook, you'll find the lab Facebook page with uh, where I, I write about my own research, but I also highlight other people's research if that's if I find that interesting. Can people message and be like, I'm curious about this. Please research this. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I can always use more ideas for future studies. Yes. Yeah, so so yeah, please email me. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing what other research you come out with. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for your interest. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed, stop what you're doing right now and give me a rating on your app. It really helps other people find me. If you have thoughts or tips you'd like to share, please do at Pod on Instagram, Twitter, or Gmail. I'll see you guys next time.